Number 190, Psalm 98. Sing a song to Jehovah. We'll sing all three verses. Thank you. 
Let's go to page number 166. 166. On uh, that page we find Psalm 87. Zion founded on the mountains. We'll sing all three verses. number 137, 137, without intemptation, it's Psalm 73, we'll sing all three verses of this also. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
Psalm 22 is found on page number 37. Page 37, Psalm 22. Amid the thronging worshipers, Jehovah will I bless. We'll sing all three verses of this one also. The psalmist declares, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In this life we will have days of trouble, but when we call upon the Lord we can be confident that he will deliver, that he will provide, and therefore we can give him our confident worship. So let us begin our time together by asking him for help in giving him the worship that he deserves. Let us pray together. Father, speak to us that your servants might hear. 
and cause us to be filled with such faith that our worship would well forth without boundary and without limit. Cause Yourself to be glorified through us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's sing praise to Him together from number 315. Beloved, we confess our faith along with the saints in every place and every age using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Our psalm reading this evening is Psalm 88. It's one of the psalms of lament written by Heman the Ezraite. And it's a sort of a unique psalm. Because all of the other psalms of lament, while they pour out the psalmist's grief over the situation in which he finds himself, the enemies who confront him, the woes of life, they all express some measure of relief, some measure of confidence in the Lord, some hope for what is to come, but Psalm 88 doesn't. The only start of a ray of life is the fact or ray of light is the fact that he calls the Lord the God of my salvation. But yet he cries out to him, implying that he can't perceive that the Lord is hearing his cry. That's a hard thing to hear. But it's in the Psalter for a reason. It's in the Psalter because sometimes we don't feel as though the Lord is hearing us. We don't see the answers to our prayers and we're surrounded by walls. By those who don't seem willing or able to hear us and to help us. But this psalm, the fact that it's in the Psalter, indicates that God does hear, that God does know. And in fact, it's a psalm of Christ. Because this was His song crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because He suffered that, because He was able to sing that song, to proclaim in truth that God had forsaken Him because He was bearing our sin and our rebellion, therefore we can know that no matter what we feel, no matter what we perceive, God is hearing us. God is providing us and God will deliver us. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws, me ne draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Each day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Does, do, not, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions 
have become darkness. That's dark. But again, because Christ endured the fullness of what is expressed there, we can be confident that even when that's our experience, when that's our feeling, we know that God will deliver us. So let's take up that psalm as our prayer, as our confession, number 168. We're going to use an alternate tune. The, uh, the one assigned to it in the Psalter hymnal is um, a bit incongruous. It's sort of almost bouncy. It doesn't really fit the words, but I think the alternate tune does. So we'll sing all five stanzas of 168.
as we come before the Lord in prayer, just um, one additional update. Um, we've been praying for John Timberman's grandson, Barrett. He did have open-heart surgery last Wednesday. Um, they were hoping that they could maybe avoid that, but uh, they were not able to. But um, it did go well, and uh, it seems like he's slowly improving. So uh, let's keep him in our prayers. Let's pray together. Father, we hear the words of the psalmist. And those words remind us, on the one hand, of the misery into which sin early on plunged us. How in our sin we could have no hope, we could have no deliverance, we could have no life. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son to take that misery upon Himself that we might know deliverance and hope and life eternal. And we pray, Father, that You would enable us to remember that daily, continuously, because we know, too, that the sentiments of that psalm are sometimes ours in this life. We are afflicted by our sins. We feel overwhelmed by opponents against us. We endure trials of the flesh, trials of the heart. And sometimes it seems like complete darkness with no light to temper it. But because your Son endured all that Psalm 88 describes. We know that You hear our prayer, that You answer us according to our need, and that You will deliver us. Lord, we praise You for that, for that hope, for that confidence that You have bestowed upon us. For we so desperately need it. We live in a world that is filled with Your enemies. We live in a time that is permeated by lies, by the the lies of the evil one who claims that he will obtain victory and that our way is a way of, of darkness. The evil one who would smear and slander your people and seek to make our life a misery. Lord, we know that your way is the way of truth. And we pray that you would strengthen us in that conviction. That you would... Allow us to see that the pleasures of the flesh and the pleasures of the world are but for a moment. But the blessings of serving You, of living in communion with You through Christ, of enjoying the, the blessings and the strengthening of Your Holy Spirit, those are blessings eternal. Those are blessings that will never, ever end. Father, we so thank You for that reality. And we thank You that You have united us to a congregation, to the body of Christ, that reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ and the life eternal that is ours. We pray that You would strengthen us through each other and for each other. That You would enable us, Lord, to remind each other of how good You are. When one strays, cause the other to draw them back. When one is brought low, cause the others to lift him up. And Lord, we pray that you would daily 
renew our faith and draw us close to You. Help us to see the multitude of ways in which You provide for us that we might live a life of gratitude before You. And when the world cries out against us or the evil one plots and plans and puts traps in our path, help us to recognize, Lord, that that desperation of the enemy is born of knowing that he has been defeated. That Christ has been victorious. And that it's only a matter of time until we see the renewal of all things and the removal of your every enemy. Until then, Lord, make us to be steadfast. Us here at Grace and us, your people, in every place where they're gathered. Lord, help us to make disciples of the nations. Boldly telling our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our all, that you are the one who gives life meaning and purpose. That you have overcome the enemy, including the embassy of the enemy that dwelt within us from the start. And Lord, we pray that you would make us to be successful in proclaiming your truth. You know our weakness. You know our foolishness. We wouldn't choose ourselves to be your spokesman, but you have chosen us. So equip us and encourage us and use us to that end. Father, we we thank you for the church that you have continued to prosper and to strengthen your church throughout the world. Far too often in our land, the church has been presumptuous. Not living militantly in the world, but enjoying comfort, ease, acting as though It was no big deal whether we proclaimed your truth or told others who you were or lived according to your precepts or showed your character to the world, but that's a lie. So Father, we pray that you would waken your church in this land. That you would allow us to see the the imperative of using the gifts, the freedoms, the blessings that you've given to us in a way that points others to you, knowing that the time is short, knowing that we are the means by which they are to encounter you. We pray for our elders and our deacons and our minister that these would be used of you to mold and shape us in the way that you would have us to live. That you would use these to encourage us to be witnesses for you in the way that we live, in the way that we serve, in the way that we speak, in the way that we interact with the world. We ask your blessing on our consistory and our deacons that they would encourage one another and that they would be effective in that. We pray for our missionaries, Lord. We think of Pastor Dodinga and the work that he does with Miami International Seminary. We pray that you would bless all of those working with mints, that they would be used powerfully to equip your church both at home and abroad equipping the church to do and to be what you have called it to do and be. 
We pray for our youth as they go forth and, and learn what it means to serve in the name of Christ. We think of those going to Sanborn this coming week. We ask that you would bless them not just with safe travel, but with, with good and challenging opportunities to use their strength and their gifts in ways which will put the name of Christ and the power of Christ on display. We pray for our own vacation Bible school. That as final preparations are made, those preparations would be blessed of you. And this church would be ready and eager to proclaim, to display the gospel before those children whom you will usher into our midst. We pray that you would be at work in their hearts and in the hearts of their families to hear the message that is proclaimed and to take hold of it and turn to you. Father, we pray this, that your kingdom, all of this, that your kingdom might grow, that your people might be gathered. Lord, we look around us in our land. We see the multitude of killings. We see the callousness of the people. We see how preoccupied they are with things and with experiences of the moment. We see the materialism and the worldliness and the, the pervasive darkness. And we grieve, Lord. For we know that they're just distracting themselves and entertaining themselves right into hell. We long to see them turned. Their eyes opened, their hearts softened that they might recognize their need and accept their need for Christ. Lord, only You can do it, but You are abundantly able. And so we pray that You would work powerfully throughout this land to turn the hearts of many unto You. Lord, we pray for the needs of Your people. You have met our needs so abundantly in so many ways. We rejoice at the way that you have comforted those who grieve and healed those who've been sick. Lord, we ask that you would continue to meet the needs of them one and all. We think of little Barrett. Lord, grant him healing and strength and encouragement. Grant his parents the ability to stand strong through faith in you. We pray, Father, that you would uh, bless all of those within this congregation, those who are dealing with long-term ailments, those who are wrestling with struggles within their families or struggles within their hearts. Lord, you, you know the need of each one. We pray that you would cause us to stand firm through our faith in you, resting on your precious promises, confident because of Christ. Forgive us of our sins. And cause us to arise each day this week overwhelmed by confidence in Your goodness. Reaffirming our faith in You. Eager to live in a way that will show the world that we belong to You. Now Father, we pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who allowed Himself to suffer and be forsaken, that we might be forever received by Your fatherly hand. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.
Well, as we prepare to look together to our last text in Daniel, um, that text speaks of warfare, conflict. Conflict that was facing Israel shortly after Daniel's age, but also, more broadly, the conflict that continues, that persists throughout this time until the end, when Christ makes all things new. Psalm 2 was written for just that time. When the nations stand up and rattle their swords and mock the Lord and those who follow Him. But but Psalm 2 reminds us that there is a God in heaven. He sits on the throne. He knows the truth. He laughs at their scorn and their rebellion because He knows very soon they will be brought to an end. So let's stand and confess that as we sing Psalm 2, Selection 3 in our Psalter hymn. This evening we have something of an unusual situation in that we have this final vision in Daniel. Now, as a pastor, there's two choices there. One can 
say we're going to look at every single verse in this final vision, in which case we would need to plot out about the next two months for that. Uh, or we can look at a section which encompasses the message of the whole and understand the whole through that. That has some limitations to do that. Uh, you don't get all the nuances, all the little details. Calvin chose, when he went through this text, the first option. Took him well over a hundred pages in his commentary, which is really just a, a uh, sort of an account of his lectures and, and sermons on the subject. But we're going to take the second option. We're going to look specifically at the first three verses of chapter 12. But I think in order to do that and to do it well, we need to take the time to read this vision. It really starts at verse 18 of chapter 10. That's where we ended last time. We saw how Daniel was confronted, not just by angelic visitors, but by the Lord himself. And he was weak, confronted by the Lord, confronted by his visions. He required the Lord's continuous touch, his continuous strengthening to enable him to receive the message. But then starting in verse 18, we read what came next. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, My Lord, speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these, except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom, stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but he shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which he shall keep coming, and, or which shall keep coming, and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. 
Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall, arise, shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall, rise, shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army, and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. When the king of the north, then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed he shall return and come to the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Ketim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid and withdraw. And shall turn back and be enraged. And take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress. And shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they will stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king will do what he pleases. 
what he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. Now listen, so you're aware, we've been talking about a war in Greece, in the Grecian kingdom, between the rulers of the Greek empire in the north, that is in Syria, and in the south, which is Egypt. Between, I guess from your perspective it's here, between Egypt and Syria is Israel. At this point, at verse 36, the northern king is in charge. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the one who was foretold in chapter 8 in that vision. And what's described here is a time of great punishment, of great wrath, of great turmoil in the promised land. Right? Uh, there would be certainly turmoil from without, from Antiochus and his people, who sought to replace the worship of the true God and the covenant with the true God with the false gods of the Greek pantheon. But there would also be trouble from within. As Jews who sought not God but power allied with Him and colluded with Him in removing the worship from the temple, in removing the service of God to which Israel was called. The king shall do as he wills, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, shall, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries. And the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver. And all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountains. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. You notice the climax there. It looks like this king from the north, this Grecian king, who really his only God is the God of fortresses, the God of human strength, the God of power, the God of might, the God of politics. It looks like no one will be able to overcome him. And just when it looks like he's going to triumph over the whole world, he comes to an end. What we don't read there is that he will come to an end in an utterly inglorious way by guerrilla warfare from the people of Israel. But that's not really the important part. That's why it's not even mentioned here. Because the real battle didn't happen on the land. The real battle didn't happen with swords. Listen to, verse, or to chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. 
And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Amen. Beloved, this final vision of Daniel's book is incredibly detailed as you see. That scares a lot of people off. Thinking there's no way they could understand this detailed final vision of Daniel. But if we were to take the time, literally it would take hours and hours, to go through all of those details in the light of the history of Israel, starting at the time that Daniel wrote, and going up through the time of the Maccabees, we would find that every detail that the Lord describes here in chapter 11 to Daniel beautifully corresponds to what actually happened. Like I said, it took John Calvin over a hundred pages to in great detail describe the correspondence of the prophecy to the history. In fact, liberal scholars of the last... 150 years or so, looked at that chapter as evidence that Daniel couldn't have been written by Daniel, but had to be written by someone probably in around 200 B.C., after the fact, because they believed there was no way that such detailed prophecy about the future could actually be written. It had to have been written looking back at what actually happened. But all of those details are secondary. Because like much prophecy, as we've seen already in some of Daniel's visions, there is a, an initial fulfillment, and then there is an ultimate fulfillment. 
the initial fulfillment of what we see in chapter 11 was meant to provide comfort to Daniel and to his people because they were about to enter a time of trouble that would grow more and more and more troubling as geopolitical powers from Persia and Greece and ultimately Rome rose up and, and caused strife and used Israel as their battleground. And this was intended to show that it would not be the end of God's people. In fact, there would be triumph, there would be victory, there would be eternal life for God's people. But there was also a bigger message. A comfort for us. Because much like Israel, we live in an age of turmoil. We live in an age of warfare. We live in an age where sometimes it looks like God's people will be brought to nothing. How can we withstand the evil and the ugliness that rages around us? And this chapter is meant to, or this vision is meant to reassure us as well that our end will be an end of triumph. Because the war, the battle depends not on us, but on our God. And so the theme that we want to consider as we look especially at these three verses of Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3, is that the Lord assures Israel of a triumphant end. And that's an end which shall be initiated by a humbling spiritual battle, but will, be, will then climax in a glorious resurrection reward. Now again, we look at the very start of this chapter. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. To what does that refer? To what time does that refer? That initially refers to what we saw beginning in about verse 40. At that time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, etc. So it speaks of this, this great vision which would culminate in the triumph of Antiochus Epiphanes, which would launch a time of, of great warfare and, and struggle and strife in Israel. When pretenders and hypocrites among God's people would ally themselves with, with the powers of darkness from the world, but a time of but that time of struggle, that time of trial would come to an end. And the king would be finished. He shall come to his end with none to help him. But before Antiochus came to his end, before that time of warfare was brought to a conclusion, God's people would struggle. Their worship would be stopped. An abomination of desolation would be established right in the courts of the temple. Unclean animals would be slaughtered there. God's people themselves would be slaughtered in the temple courts if they insisted on keeping the commands of God and on not violating their consciences. But even in the midst of that struggle, the Lord says, Michael, the angel charged with protecting Israel, would watch over them. Nothing would be allowed to afflict them that God himself had not ordained to allow. The remnant of God's faithful people would be preserved. And in fact, not only would they outlast Antiochus, but after Antiochus, they would even be given this respite in which no one would govern them but they themselves before Rome finally came and exerted some power. But folks, all of that is merely a shadow of a far greater conflict 
and a far greater victory. You see, the true battle for God's people isn't fought by mere flesh and blood. The true battle is a spiritual war. Remember what we, what we hear in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why he doesn't even mention in that vision the Maccabean forces that arose in Israel and were used of God to, to defeat Antiochus Epiphanes. Instead, he mentions Michael, the great archangel, because the real battle happens in the heavenly places. You see, Daniel 11 and 12 point to a far greater reality. A spiritual battle waged among angels, waged in the heavenly places, which for us has already come to completion. If you still have your Bibles open, throw your bulletin in Daniel 12 and turn to the back of the Bible. In Revelation 12, we see a, a more detailed vision of this great battle which is foreshadowed. There in Revelation 12, we're told at the start, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. That's Israel, that's the church. The woman, the bride of our God. Twelve stars on her head to signify Israel. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Israel is about to give birth to the promised child of Eve, the one who would attack the serpent and would bring an end to our ancient enemy. And verse 5 of that chapter tells us she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's the one about whom we just sang in Psalm 2. He's the one who would bring about great victory and the one whom Satan sought to destroy. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. However, before he is caught up to God, before he is taken out of the world, a battle is fought. You see, the enemy who is depicted in Revelation 12 as a great red dragon, whom we know as Satan or the devil or the serpent, he sought to destroy Christ, but instead he was destroyed or will be destroyed by him. Starting in verse 7, we read about the great climactic battle. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels, same Michael, same angel, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him, listen to this, they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's the ultimate battle to which Daniel 11 pointed. Not the battle that happened between the king of the north and the king of the south in the promised land in which the people of the promise fought against the king of the north and inexplicably, it seemed to historians, overcame him. That was merely an 
earthly shadow of the true battle that was happening in heaven. Where Michael and his fellow angels were fighting against the serpent and his fallen angels. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of the son. And cast him with finality out of the realms of heaven. Preparing for his ultimate destruction. Before Jesus was born, bringing this war to a climax, the woman depicted in Revelation 12, Israel, the nation, was relatively obscure. Only at decisive moments where God revealed his power was Israel even noted by the nation. When, he, when God delivered his people from Egypt through the sea, they took note. Right? When David rose up as the king after God's own heart, and conquered all the nations around, then the people took note, the nations took note of Israel. When they were overcome by Babylon and deported, then the nations recognized that Israel existed. But for the most part, they knew and cared little about Israel. They were too consumed with their own affairs, too consumed with the business of Satan. But now Satan is cast down and he is enraged knowing that his time is short. And so Revelation 12 tells us at the very end, he did, although he desires to attack God, he can't reach him. He's been cast out. And so he makes war on the woman's offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan has declared war on us during this time. That's why this is a time of great trouble. That's why this is a time of great turmoil. That's why until Christ returns, there will be ultimately no rest for the church. Because Satan hates us. And because Satan makes war against us. And we can count on that continuing until he is brought to a conclusive end. How long will that happen? Verse 14 says... She will be the, the woman, the church, will be in the wilderness for a time and times and half a time. Doesn't that sound familiar? Looking back now at Daniel 12, someone asks, how long before this vision finds fulfillment? And Jesus answers for a time, times and half a time. How long is that? We don't know. It's a perfect fullness of time. But it will be interrupted at an unexpected moment, time. Times, but then half a time. When it seems things are just going along like they've always gone along, then it will finally come to an end. And when it comes to an end, the enemies of God's people will suddenly, like Antiochus Epiphanes, be shattered, be defeated, be brought low. But until that time, we will have trouble. Just as Daniel had trouble standing before Christ, in our last text, why did he have to have so much trouble? Why did he have to await the Lord touching him again and again and again before he could stand, before he could speak, before he could receive the vision? It was so that he would know his weakness, so that he would know that his strength came only and entirely from the Lord. And so we, in this time, the church seems weak, doesn't it? We don't hold some amazing power in the eyes of the world. In fact, we're scorned. We're mocked. We're derided. But that's so that our continued persistence, that's so that our ultimate triumph will be attributed to the right place. Not to us. Not to our power, our wisdom, our cunning, but to the Lord who is the one who sustained us. 
and who ultimately will bring us victory. But for now, in this time, we feel the pain of humbling as the dragon continues to war against the saints. Still today, we're engaged in that humbling spiritual battle and make no mistake, although the war in principle is won, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that war was won. The battle still rages. The dragon's claws are still sharp. His breath is still hot. And so those who serve him, the unbelieving world, they will continue to slander us and mock us and attack us and seek to silence us. They hate us because he hates us and he hates us because he hates God, whom we love, whom we serve, whom we reflect. Those attacks are sometimes painful. They're sometimes personal. But we continue to stand firm because we know who wins. And we know that very soon, in the midst of the time, the end will come. The enemy will be cast off. All will be made new. And that's what we see at the end of this text. The end is coming. And that end is glorious, my friends. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 of Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. We need to pause here and start Again, just for a moment at the beginning. Remember, this was a message intended at the first to comfort Daniel and his people. Daniel received this message about a coming time of, of trial and warfare and hardship and humbling for Israel. With the aid of Michael and his fellow angels, the evil would be fought against. And he needed to know, and he is told in verse 2, that an end is coming. Relief is coming. Victory is coming. And the same is true for us. The end will come. Victory will be given to us at a time utterly and completely unexpected. But it will come, and not by our strength. And when it comes, there will never need to be another Victory because there will never be more warfare. We need to remember how prophecy works. When you're young people, children, when you're driving across the country, you ever notice how sometimes details in the distance kind of fade into one another? I remember when we were going on our second summer assignment, we were going out to Edmonton driving with four children at the time. Uh, which is a long drive from Chicago. And uh, as we came toward the mountains, you could see them in the distance. But then as we got closer, as Edmonton is like, go to Montana, hang a right. Uh, as we got closer to the mountains, these mountains that looked like one solid range, all of a sudden we saw they weren't. There was a small one, and there were some foothills, and there was uh, kind of a medium one, and then there were more foothills, and then there was a bigger one. In other words... There were all of these differentiations, all of these different details that we couldn't see from a distance. It looked like this solid mass, but in fact it wasn't. And that's what prophecy often shows us. He says here, he speaks here of this battle. And this time of trouble such as never has been. And then he says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. He's talking about a resurrection. Now the time between... The climax of that battle and today has been 2,000 years. 
the end, the resurrection, the fulfillment might come tomorrow. Or it might be another two, three, four thousand years. We don't know. But we know that it's coming, and that's the point. And what is it? What is it that's coming? One day soon, the Lord will reach out His hand. And He will bring an end to the serpent. He will bring an end to the evil king of the north who has been harassing and mocking and afflicting God's people throughout this age. And on that day, we and all who have ever lived will be raised up from the dust of the earth. Both those who are living at that moment will be gathered before the Lord and before His throne, but also all who have ever lived will be restored to life and made to stand before the Lord and His throne. And at that time, they will be rewarded according to who they are and what they have done. Now before we consider what that looks like, we need to remember well, this is speaking of a judgment. Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, that on that day of judgment, there are many who will think they're just fine because they confess Jesus, because they belong to the church. They'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And to some of them, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He's saying, you might have spoken my name, you might have lived among my people, but you lived for lawlessness. You lived for sin and rebellion. And that shows that you're not mine. In that day, the truth and the reality of people's lives will be revealed. Revelation 20, John says, John describes that day. And he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And those books will reveal the truth of what we have done and what we have said and even of our consciences, what we have desired. And everyone who has ever lived will be judged according to those books and also one other book. And that's the Lamb's book of life. The book that names every one of the elect, the ones whom God chose from before all eternity, the ones for whom Jesus died. And rose again. On that day, says the Lord, some will arise to shame and everlasting contempt. Those are the ones who lived for themselves, who lived for lawlessness, who embraced the ways of the dragon, of the evil one. Those are the ones who compromise, who forget the reality of the covenant, who forget the glory of heaven, who live for the moment and for their feelings and for the acceptance of men. For them there will be shame and everlasting contempt and let none of us be among them. Know that that day is coming. It's so easy to think only of today, to think only of the moment, to think I'll worry about it later. I'll worry about the Lord later. I'll worry about getting serious about this stuff later. Today, I want people to like me. Today, I want to know the, the excitement of this experience. But this age lasts only for a time, times and half a time, and times have passed. When will that moment come when the trumpet sounds and all are summoned before the throne of the Lord? We don't know. 
But let none of us be caught unaware, caught by surprise, and find that our end is shame and everlasting contempt because we live only for the fear of man and the fear of the world and the pleasures of the flesh. But let the Lord rather cause us to arise to everlasting life. Who are they who will know the blessing, the joy of everlasting life? They are those who are wise and those who are generous. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the stars or the sky above. What is it to be truly wise? Is it not to believe every word of the God who created us? The God who is so insightful, so understanding, so full of knowledge and power that He's able to proclaim the very details of what is to come hundreds of years in the future and have every single detail come to pass. True wisdom is to believe Him, not the myopic lies of people who don't even know what gender is. Not the folly of people who lie to themselves in such a way that their consciences cry out in protest. The lies of people who call good evil and evil good and do so knowingly, understandingly. That's folly. That's death. But wisdom is to believe the Lord our God instead. That's hard though. Young people understand it's hard to live as one who is wise because it means that we need to know God's word. And we need to not just accept. The easy path is just to accept whatever society tells us, whatever our co-workers tell us, whatever the media tells us, whatever our entertainment tells us, and just accept that as true. Just be a passive vessel that nods along with whatever society tells us. That's easy. Wisdom is hard because wisdom means you take what the media tells you and you take what your neighbor tells you and you take even what your teachers and your family and your friends tell you and you filter it through the filter of God's Word. And whatever agrees with God's Word you hold on to, but whatever contradicts it in any manner, you say no. Even if they mock you, even if they slander you, even if they threaten you, and they will. Because when you compare what the world says with what God says, you're showing them that they are not the measure of truth, that they are not the measure of what is right and wrong. You'll show them, you'll remind them that there comes a day of judgment and that they have to be wise. They have to make that determination. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to do that hard work. They don't want to acknowledge that one day they'll have to answer for what they have believed and what they have not. And so they will slander you. They will mock you. They will minimize you. They will... Oh, they'll do all manner of things. But remember, you who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. You who knew God's Word and loved it. You who compared what you were taught with what God has taught. You who held on only to that which is eternally true. You will shine like the stars of the sky. And also you who are generous. What do I mean by that? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars. That's what I mean by generous. We have been given in Christ a righteousness that will withstand the judgment of God. But we were not given that righteousness for ourselves alone. 
We were called to make disciples of the nations. That means we turn others to righteousness. And you think, well, that's not me. I wasn't given the gift to turn others to righteousness. I'm not a preacher. I'm not an elder. I'm not a politician. I'm not a, a theologian. You don't have to be. If you belong to the Lord, it will become your desire to lead many, to turn many to righteousness. How do you do that? It's really not rocket science. You embrace that calling to turn others to righteousness when you cultivate Christian friendships in the church. When you speak to one another about the trials and the struggles and the temptations of life. When you pray with and for one another for strength to overcome those trials. When you encourage and build one another up so that your friends, your fellow Christians know that they're not alone and that they're not the only ones struggling and that they have someone they can lean on, you are turning them to righteousness. And when you live in the midst of a world that is filled with darkness and folly and misery, and you look for opportunities to show them the mercy and the love of Christ, when you hug and you embrace that neighbor who feels like no one cares, when you lend a listening ear to that co-worker whom everyone else ignores, when you speak words of hope to the one who is at the end of their rope, when you show them that love and when the opportunity arises, you tell them of the hope that God has given you, you are turning many to righteousness. When you boldly call the magistrates, the governing officials, to use their office aright, urging them to protect those who can't protect themselves, reminding them that they are servants of God, whether they like it or not, assuring them that you're praying for them. When you do that, you are seeking to turn them to righteousness. And when you raise children, when you raise these children among us to know that that they were born in the misery of sin, but that Christ came to overcome that misery of sin, and that they are called as recipients of the covenant promises to trust in Christ and in Him alone, and to show that faith by the way that they live. You are turning many to righteousness. You see, this is just living the Christian life. That's what it means to turn many to righteousness. And if you're doing that, then on that last great day, the Lord will look at you He will see the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my everlasting kingdom. That day's coming soon. So let us make it our prayer that God would enable us to live in the light of that judgment, to live in the light of that promise, to live in the confident hope of the glorious eternal end that is ours. And having made that our daily prayer, let us live in the confidence. God will do what we've asked. And God will enable us to stand firm to the end. And how amazing that end will be for us. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, you know how hard life in this world of warfare often is. You know that we cannot stand on our own. That we cannot endure by our strength. But we know that you are greater.
we know that You are stronger. We know that You have already obtained the victory and that You can cause us to stand to the end. And so, Lord, we pray that You would cause us to do so. That You would make us to be the wise of the earth who love Your Word and evaluate all things by it. That You would make us to turn many to righteousness by the simple, straightforward act of confessing Christ and living according to His precepts in this world. And Lord, we pray that You would speed the day of Christ's coming. That we might know the fullness of the victory that He has obtained and that we might embrace and rejoice in the glory of His victory. Until that day, cause us to stand firm, we pray. And cause us to rejoice even in the midst of the conflict in the glory that is sure to be ours. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. While we yet live in that time of turmoil, that time of trouble, we need to be in prayer. We need to be looking continuously to Christ. Hymn 464 urges us to do that, recognizing that we're surrounded by enemies, but recognizing that the one who has called us is greater. So let's stand and sing together number 464. this evening is for the Christian Education Fund. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the word by which we are able to test all things and the calling to trust in you, which is the root of true knowledge and wisdom. 
We pray that You would teach our children to pursue wisdom in this way. And that You would bless our offering this evening to assist us in that process as we seek to uh, pursue Christian education for our children. And Lord, we pray that You would receive the gifts that we give as a token of our gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 176. We'll sing all the stanzas, O God, our help in ages past. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.